invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, the 15th chapter. We'll be spending most of our time in the passage uh, just read for us, perhaps the uh, most beautiful picture of the Gospel of Jesus Christ uh, that we can have here. So we enter this morning into a, a familiar portion of Scripture. Three parables are in chapter 15 here, one regarding a lost sheep, one a lost coin, and one a lost son. And the punchline of each is that there's joy in heaven over the repentance of one sinner, over the finding of one who is lost. Now, having taught in chapter 14 by Jesus here that the kingdom of God is an eternal feast, we now dine on the words of Jesus. His words are compelling his hearers, his listeners, they're compelling them to enter into the joyful celebration of God the Father. The celebration is over those who were dead, who have been raised to life in Jesus Christ. So these parables are all about us joining in to this festival, into this celebration of the lost being found, of the dead rising to newness of life. To that end, will you join me with a word of prayer? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful that you seek out lost sheep and lost coins and lost sons. We come to you as people who are in need of your grace, in need of your mercy, of your love, that we might be raised to newness of life in Jesus Christ. Help us to enter joyfully, fully into the celebration that is your, your kingdom. Come now as it is in heaven. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we are to enter into the joyful celebration of the dead being raised in Christ. Three parables lie before us, chapter 15 of Luke, and each one gets a little more intimate and a little more filled out or rich. It begins with one out of 100 sheep being lost. Then you've got one out of 10 coins, and then you have one out of two sons. You move from field uh, to farmhouse to family. The lost are found. In each case, a great celebration ensues on earth as it is in heaven. But what instigates these parables? Why is Jesus telling three parables? Well, look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 15. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, and the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. In these parables, Jesus is illustrating a contrast here between the Pharisees and scribes and then those tax collectors and sinners. You've got sinners, you've got righteous rulers on either side, those sinners, outcasts, rebels. And what we see is that those religious leaders, those Pharisees, remain outside of Jesus' invitation, outside of the feast, and they grumble. It reminds us of Israel in the wilderness, unable to enter into the festival land of milk and honey, Rather, they grumble in the wilderness, longing for life back in Egypt. Now, we come to this passage here, and it's clear throughout like, that the religious leaders are very angry. And so we're asking why. Why are these religious leaders angry? Why are they rejecting Jesus' words here? What are they even rejecting in Jesus' teaching? Why don't they enter into what he's asking of them? Why are they so angry at Jesus. Well, if you've heard his teaching throughout the Gospel of Luke, you've noticed the religious leaders are cast as villains, and it happens again in here, in these, here. 
Um, they, they are villains in Jesus' stories. They, so what they fear here is that, that Jesus is leading followers of God, devout followers of God. They, the religious leaders fear that he's, Jesus is leading them astray. And so they're angry for him propagating lies and untruth. Jesus has been telling stories, and in the religious leaders are the antagonists, whereas sinners become the protagonists, or the heroes. When he tells the story of the, the, the good Samaritan, you mean a, a, a Samaritan would love better than us? What? Or a tax collector's prayer is, is heard while the Pharisee's prayer is not. The blind, the lame, and the poor are feasting in God's kingdom while the righteous and the rich, they're cast out. How can this be? Yet, what we see is that tax collectors and sinners, they know their need for deliverance from sin and from their rebellion. Those are the ones that are drawing near to Jesus, while those who deny their need for Jesus or a Savior, those Pharisees and scribes, are grumbling. They're seeking to, to trap Jesus, even to destroy him. Well, these parables will read pleasantly to our ears. For the scribes and the Pharisees, it's like fingernails on the chalkboard. So they mock Jesus, they foment, and they rage. But I mean, if you look at verse, verses 3 through 7, I mean, why would this parable of the lost sheep anger them? Look at verses 6 and 7. Jesus tells the story. When he, the shepherd, comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. We have in this parable the, the pastoral vision of a shepherd with a sheep slung over his shoulders, arriving home to invite neighbors to feast with him and to celebrate, for the lost has been found. But this imagery angers the Pharisees and scribes. They are put off. Jesus' parable is a rebuke against them for their lack of care of God's sheep. See, they would be familiar with the prophet Zechariah and Ezekiel. Those two prophets storied Israel's leaders as shepherds. Those shepherds who neglected the care for the poor, the widow, the stranger, and the orphan. Who would abuse those same people and become fat and sleek themselves while the sheep under their care are neglected, pitiable, and poor. In parable form, those shepherds gorge themselves upon the poor, the vulnerable, and the weak. And the Lord threatened to send them away, to exile them, and to destroy them. He promised that he would raise up a good shepherd, that he himself would come to shepherd his people. The good shepherd has come to vindicate the sinners who come to him, the outcasts who come to him while rebuking the wicked and abusive shepherds. So in this parable, there is in, implicit in it a rejection of those righteous who need no savior, the well who need no physician. But those who know they are sick come to the great physician. Those who see themselves as lost come to the good shepherd. They draw near to Jesus seeing how they, have how they have strayed, they're asking the question, well, what shepherd is this who would seek us out? Who would delight in our homecoming? Isn't this the shepherd that we would want? 
one who delights to share in the salvation of one out of 100? Leaving 99 for the one? Isn't this who we want? And yet the Pharisees, what do we see? They're grumbling. They're grumbling. They begrudge God his generosity and Jesus his truth. One in 100 sheep is significant, but one in 10 coins as a life savings is even maybe more significant than that. What king is this who then compares himself to a woman who is searching for a lost coin? And we look at verse 9 and 10 here. When she found the coin, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is more, there's joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. If the kingdom of God is described here, then the, there's a king in this kingdom who searches diligently, perseveringly, with rich patience for the lost. And when found, this king would celebrate extravagantly. He invites others in to rejoice with me. He's saying here, even in heaven, there is a feast going on and great celebration over one who is lost that's been found, one sinner who repents. The point in both of these first two parables becomes clear in Jesus' final word on each of them, that, that joy abounds in the repentance of sinners even over one sinner. Yet grumbling ruptured the feast of Jesus with the sinners here. The grumblers remained outside the intimate joy. They were angry that Jesus would share life and love with people whom God was certainly disappointed with, with people certainly they were disappointed with. But Jesus is saying here that even the repentance of one such sinner causes God's holy company in heaven to erupt with joy and celebration. And he's inviting those who would come to him into that joy and into that celebration. That's the image of Jesus' gospel, that none can wander too far. None can lose themselves further than his gracious search. Oh, none are righteous and all sin and fall short of the glory of God. All are in very real ways lost. But Jesus is the good shepherd, the persistent widow, come to seek and save the lost. And he's simply calling in these parables to come to him, enjoy the fellowship and the communion with him, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And to drive home the point in each of these parables, we've got those two parables, we've got a third parable where you see a father's pursuit of two lost sons. The first is lost but found in accordance with the other parables. And the second son well, we'll see. To recap then, Pharisees and Sadducees stand outside the feast and they grumble. They're angry because they are projected as villains. And Jesus is saying that God is the one pursuing the lost. So what does this parable of the lost sons have to teach us? Verse 11 and following. He said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. He divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had, took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. It's the age-old story of sin, sin imaged in the form of a young son's rebellion. Not only the son's actions, but his Heart. He's rejecting family name. He's rejecting the love of his father and asking for the inheritance. He's wishing his father was dead. He's rejecting the kingdom way, a 
of the father. Now, laws could be enacted that would prevent sons from abandoning new fathers in such a way, without great consequence, right? You could construct society in such a way. But would that turn the hearts of sons to their fathers and fathers to their sons? Jesus' story here, the, the prodigal son or the lost sons here, it addresses the heart of man, the heart of sin in man. Can we see ourselves in the heart of the younger brother? See, the Pharisees and scribes are grumbling outside. They don't see themselves as the younger brother. They would be the older brother in this scenario, right? And they would look down on the younger brother for the way that they would have treated their God. Verses 14 and following. When he spent everything, the younger son, a severe famine arose in that country. He began to be in need, so went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Now, that's prodigal. That's what prodigal means, to spend extravagantly, wastefully. This son spent everything he had reduced serving pigs, longing to live as well as the livestock. Now, questions can arise at this point. You know, how could a father allow a son to do such things? And where is the father when this tragedy befalls his son? It's the story of Israel in many ways. Those who have received God's inheritance, his good gifts, his word, his law, who share an eternal worship through sacrifice and temple worship, Large garden land given them, flowing with milk and honey. And yet they squandered these gifts generation after generation to satisfy their own appetites. And we can relate to that. But like the younger son, Israel knew exile to foreign lands. They were starved of God's provision, of his protection. God left them to their own devices. And for Israel, at times, that would incur a hunger, an appetite for God, and they would return, and many times not. This son, his appetite for God increased for his father. He hungered and thirsted. Are we offended to read ourselves as the younger son? Now, some of us see his waywardness in our own lives very clearly and see and feel our sin particularly well. We can feel a failure before God. We know that we are fickle in our obedience, that we lack in generosity and grace toward others. Some of us are better at seeing the younger son in others. can identify, yep, he's one of them, she's one of them. It's difficult to accept our likeness to the younger son. But this is what Jesus is calling us to, to see that we are wayward and rebellious in our own ways as we turn from God, His commands, and His love. So we have in verses 17 through 19, the son rehearses his repentance speech. He wants to go back to be with his family and his father, but he's, he recognizes he's not worthy to be a son. He wants to go back only as a servant, so he makes his way back to the father. He begins his speech of repentance until the father interrupts. Verse 20, he arose, came to the father, while he was still a long way off, what happens? His father saw him, felt compassion, ran and embraced him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And that's as far as he got. 
The father ran out to meet him. When Jesus said in the earlier two parables that there's more joy in heaven over one who repents, this is what Jesus means by repentance. Coming to Jesus, confessing sin, rising in acceptance, as the younger son does here. If Jesus' parable about the lost sheep and the lost coin is right, then in this parable here, there would be much rejoicing amongst God's holy council and his angels. What father would so freely embrace a son like this? Verse uh, 22 and following then. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate, right? We've heard the prodigal son, right? We often think of the word prodigal as meaning a rebelliousness. Prodigal simply means this, wastefully extravagant, spending freely, lavishly. The younger son is prodigal indeed, right? But how much more so the father? His seems to have a boundless prodigality. So in many ways, this is not a parable about a prodigal son. As Tim Keller's book has it, this is a story about our prodigal God. I mean, what father? What father could so freely embrace the son who rejected his heart, his home? The son who wished him dead right to his face? The son who wasted family inheritance? What father in that culture would heap shame upon himself by running in such a way and accepting so freely a son, a betrayer son. And then to celebrate over this son in the same way that Abraham killed a fattened calf to celebrate the coming of celebrity guests. This father gives an extravagant ring, a familial robe, In essence, he's saying, this is no servant. This is a son of mine. He was dead, and he's come to life. Let the celebration begin. Who will join in? Who will join in? Well, there is music and dancing abounding now. And we have in the next section uh, an episode with the older brother who comes in from the field to find father has welcomed the black sheep of the family back into the fold with all the finery and riches that would one day be his. The older brother is angry at this new reality, and he confronts the father, fomenting in anger, begrudging his love. Verse 27, we pick it up. And the father said to the older son, your brother has come and your father, or the servant says to him, your brother has come and your father has killed a fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he, the older brother, was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I've served you and I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who devoured your property with prostitutes and killed, you killed a fattened calf for him. Can you feel what the older brother feels? Can you understand his anger? Yeah, we can understand that. We can empathize with him. How is this justice? We want justice. And you give mercy? 
earlier, a rich young ruler is talking with Jesus, asking, what must I do to be saved? He was obedient to a T. And Jesus said, you still lack one thing. Go and sell everything, right? You fail in neighbor love. The older brother here lacked nothing in regard to obedience, in diligent service to the father, to family, to farm, and yet he lacked one thing still. He could not love his brother in the way that the father loved his son. And how can one love God if one cannot even love his own brother? If the father loves another, cannot the son the younger son is lost as sinners and outcasts in Jesus' day. That's the one whom Jesus is saying is welcomed in? I mean, I think we feel for the older brother, don't we? Who can accept this kind of prodigality of grace, this generous love for those who would insult the family name of our Creator, who would disrespect the Father, who would waste hard-worked property, in fact, we sinners, we do need an older brother like this. We need one who is faithful in all things, who fulfills the roles in which we have failed in. But we need an older brother who loves as this father loves. The older brother here refuses. So the father pleads. We see the father run out to the younger brother and here it's the same thing. He's not running out, but he's going to the older brother in the condition and state in which he is in. And what does the father have to say in verse 31? He said to him, son, you are always with me. All that is mine is yours. It is fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. That's the end of the parables. That's it. And where do we find the older brother at the end of the parable? Where is he? He's outside the feast. He begrudges the father's love, the father's grace, and he remains outside the festal celebration of joy, of mercy, of love. This is where the hearer has to respond, right? The, the leader, religious leaders who are grumbling, this is their call to response. They would identify themselves in Jesus' parable as the older brother. And Jesus leaves them outside the feast, inviting them in, but not coercing. Inviting them to come, taste and see that the Lord is good. If this story is the life of Israel, then the Pharisees and the scribes have always been with God, right? They've always been obedient in every way. They've been seeking to serve as faithfully as prescribed in God's word. All that God gifts to mankind is theirs to enjoy, to use for the good of their neighbor, the poor, the widow, the orphan, and the nations. But when they find Jesus calling sinners and outcasts to himself, when he's, Jesus is granting access into the kingdom of God, religious rulers refuse to come into that kingdom by that way. They begrudge God his generous joy, his extravagant grace, his prodigal love. What was lacking for the older brother of these religious leaders is that they refused to enter into the joy of their father in raising the dead to life. They refuse to enter into the joy of the Father as he brings a lost home to be found. 
See, we want salvation on our own terms, to call the shots, to earn our rights and our just deserts. I've been with you all the time. I've been serving you faithfully all these years. Where's my goat? The way of the gospel is not the waywardness of the younger son where freedom at that time meant unbridled pursuit to satisfy every whim and passion. That's not the way of the gospel. But neither is the way of the gospel that of the older son. Obedience and sacrifice in order to earn a feast and festal robe. The way of the gospel, as Jesus tells us, is the way of the cross. Denying ourselves, we are stripped of all accounting ourselves righteous. We are stripped of our own righteous robes. We are to put off our old selves to be clothed with the righteous robes of Jesus Christ, which the Father gives freely as we come in need to him. Jesus Christ is the true older brother who not only enters the feast, but becomes the feast. And that's why this is perhaps the loveliest gospel story or account of Jesus' gospel. This is what his gospel is all about, the prodigality of our God in loving us, in showing mercy upon us, in celebrating with us and in us as we enter into his eternal feast. So many of us for so many years ignore God as Father And this portrayal of the father in this story, this father is no killjoy. He's not a father who delights only in obedience to his word, though he does delight in that. He delights to call strangers into his midst. He delights to to call rebels and outcasts in and to see them turn, conforming to his image and his way to enter into the kingdom through his son, who is Jesus Christ. And in that place is true freedom and justice and flourishing. No, we may not have that feast in fullness yet, but we have at least a foretaste and the promise of a fullness yet to come. We who continue in waywardness have a sense of our rebellion. We must understand time and again that we cannot out-sin God's prodigal love that we cannot outrun his prodigal grace. It's hard to believe his love is that prodigal. So that he gives his own son, that we might enter in to what? Into a feast of joy, of love, of peace. He has given his son that we might have a share in that feast. Now, some of us believe that God remains stingy or slow in response. We can list our own failures well and those of others as well. We cannot fathom God loving those whom we ourselves most despise. And therefore, do we refuse to enter in? Each of these parables ends in a celebration of grace, of love, of mercy, It's a celebration that those who are lost have been found, that those who are dead have been raised to newness of life in Jesus Christ, to dwell in the presence of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And we are called to enter in. We are called to invite others in. It is an eternal feast that has begun 
in the presence of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Jesus, your true older brother, he invites us in to share in his joy now and forevermore. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are grateful for this image of the gospel, of who you are as our Heavenly Father, as Jesus is as our brother. We thank you for your love, your generous grace that you spend so lavishly on us. We receive it graciously, Lord, gratefully, and we return our lives to you that we might be used to build your kingdom in our communities and throughout the world. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.